Hello, I'm Neil Pickett, and welcome to episode six of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a fellow artist about their life and how they do what they do, how they make creative work. And this fortnight, I caught up with the filmmaker, Sue Thompson. Sue's latest film, The Coming Back Out Ball, chronicles the journey of several elders of the Melbourne LGBTIQ community as they reclaim their sexuality in their twilight years, focusing around a ball that took place here in Melbourne in October last year. As Sue made her first film in 1994, when she set out to find out why boys were obsessed with balls. Boys and Balls, which was led by the typically obtuse commentary of the sports gurus H.G. Nelson and Roy Slaven, featured interviews with a range of famous ball handlers, as well as a number of not-so-obvious boys, blokes and men. It was egalitarian, witty, irreverent and, above all, very human, a characteristic that has become synonymous with her films. A few years ago, Sue made a film that's got a very special place in my life, Tempest at the Drop-In, and that captured the story of a group of five theatre professionals working with a number of men and women who frequent the Drop-In Centre on the corner of Chapel and Carlisle Streets in Balaclava as they rehearsed and staged a production of Shakespeare's The Tempest at Theatre Works in St Kilda. A group of talented yet marginalised locals whose suffering from mental health and substance abuse issues left them on the fringes of society, one of whom was my late father. I met with Sue in her home office in Balaclava. Her son Henry makes a brief appearance, as does Jerry the dog, and the conversation began with Sue admiring my new Zoom recorder on which I recorded the interview, and then it moved to her journey into becoming a filmmaker. Here's Sue Thompson. You know, I have to do so much technical stuff as being a documentary filmmaker, and nobody taught me to be a documentary filmmaker. I didn't go to film school. How did you become a documentary filmmaker then? Well, what what led you there? Um, I used to be a theatre director, and my passion for theatre was unending until, um, well, I used to do a bit of acting. I had a dream about being an actor, and then I got told... I one of those. <laughs> you still are. A friend of mine, Lily Bragg, she probably wouldn't mind me telling that story, uh, came to see me in a play that Kiss and Von Bibra directed yeah. at VCA. I was playing Helen of Troy. And at the end of it, it was... I'd done, like, I'd, I'd been doing a little bit of performing when I was at La Trobe University, and Lily said... What happened? That's not what you want to hear. And I remember as the, the, the words were coming out of her mouth, I literally was having the conversation in my head going, that's it. I cannot do, do this. I don't have the resilience. If I tried to be an actor, and this is a sort of response I would obviously get every now and then, I can't deal with that. And from that very moment, just that was opening night, I um, decided to become a director. Right. So I completely... So the love of the theatre was still there. Absolutely. I knew it was going to be my world. Yeah. But I realised I 
didn't a have the talent or the skills or the resilience to become a performer. So I, I think it's more resilience than anything else, though, isn't it? I mean, just generally in in creative practice, resilience is yeah. Because I've had to do that as being a filmmaker, of course. Yeah. But it, it's felt different. It's felt less public. I don't think I had the the the, the skin, the the confidence to stand outside bare, or, and I don't think I was very good ultimately. But anyway, so <laughs> that was the end of my acting career. But I yeah, I, I very quickly shifted into directing and just started directing plays and loving it. And how old were you then? I was probably about twenty four, right. maybe twenty five, twenty fours three even so yeah I did that for about three or four years I was you know theatre coordinator at Monash Uni I got to put on a lot of plays there you know ran the Festival of Australian Student Theatre at La Trobe University and met you know people that I admired from afar and everyone involved in the in those days it was like people involved in the pram factory were still sort of practicing their craft as workshop leaders and stuff and mm. it was so exciting so yeah I did all that and then um I think, I don't know what, I can't actually remember making the shift. I think what I found is I would go to the theatre and maybe suffer a little bit of anxiety and go to the film, watch a movie in a cinema, and that anxiety wasn't there. And I started just looking at the two mediums and thinking about myself and my life and my future and how could I do it. And I think I thought that... Um, I was thrilled by cinema in a way that maybe theatre didn't thrill me. I just had a... It was like an innate love for it. Mm. And I heard about... I was directing a play at La Mama or something with Vanessa Pygram in those days. She was a really good actress. She was. She's a terrific actress. Yeah. And so she and I did a couple of things together as part of the, you know, women's... Um, week at Fringe and stuff, you know. Um, I heard about that public television in Fitzroy, it was called Television Unlimited TVU, were doing a public broadcasting for the first time. They got a licence from the government and that they were looking for volunteers and it was out of the Open Channel Studios. In the old Universal yeah, Theatre. Yeah. Well, next to the old Universal And next to Triple R. Yeah. And I think I maybe had started working at The Last Laugh then and I thought, wow, that you know, sounds great. So I went along to a few meetings and people were like, um, uh, there were some working dog people there. Um, there was a lot of really interesting people at that meeting. And I just became part of this sort of collective, very unofficial collective. And then ultimately it was part of the broadcast. And on that broadcast, I was a vision switcher. I'd never done it for my life. I was a camera operator at one stage. I think I even was allowed to direct, you know, one scene of a late night talk show that we did. So basically the first one we did went for 24 hours out of those studios. We, we broadcast for 24 hours straight. Wow. And it was really incredible and it was life changing for me. That was when I went, ah, oh, this is it. So from that, I, you know, decided that's what I wanted to do and still worked in like arts administration and then I got a job at a place called Express Media who do voice works yep. and at Express Media they let me sort of move into different fields and so I was running um, video workshops so I started sort of having to just learn on the job 
teaching kids, young kids, how to make a little video and or we'd, we'd create a little scene and we'd film it. And I had no idea about anything but the tiny bit I'd learnt at, you know, Open Channel through the TVU, the public broadcasting, I sort of applied those skills very ad hoc to my work at Express Media and, um, you know, I slowly got the confidence thinking, oh, yeah, maybe I could do this. And then I, you know, wrote Boys and Balls, which was the first documentary I made. It was about 1998 or 94 or something like that, wasn't it? Mid was 90s. It was, yeah, maybe, I can't, no, it was before Claudia was born, so... 1994 would be about right, yeah. yeah. And had Roy Slavin and H.G. Nelson in it. Yeah. And it was about men's... The obsession idea, the thesis was men's obsession with balls and ball sports. Yeah. So it was a kind of tongue-in-cheek look at men's obsession with balls. That was my idea. It's, it's interesting because before we started doing this interview, your kids were here and, we, and I was talking to one of you, your kids and I said, you know, um, you just don't know where it's going to take you, but you... You just got to be in it and see where it goes, and that's in, in that's your story, isn't it? it? Just you just had your eyes open, and it went somewhere for you. Is that how you would see it? One hundred percent. I think my theatre background, because I did work at that. Like I'm not worked, going away. I'm just no, going over. To get I my worked back. hard at getting jobs and directing the plays and. Um, you know, I did a play in the car park at RMIT with students and I did plays in funny locations. I, I really felt like I worked at that, but I, in a way, the filmmaking, uh, it, it was like something just switched when I did the 24-hour broadcast with the public television. It, I, I just felt so excited about the power of the medium, the reach of the medium, the um, diversity of what we were, because instead of, we weren't just doing one play, we did, we did a, you know, 24 hours of television broadcasting. Live. From news to, you know, late night chat shows to little dramas. It was incredible, all live. <laughs> and it was so thrilling that, so in a way, yes, I think, you have to give things a go and, and just because I went to that. If I hadn't have gone to that, Neil, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am today. You're right. I hadn't, yeah. It was life-changing. And that was that thing just giving, oh, I heard about it. Oh, that sounds like, that's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, it was the same for me. I was, a, I was working uh, at a flying school and the flying school in, in Goulburn in regional New South Wales and the flying school uh, was struggling in the drought of 82 and I got a job driving uh, sheep and then they there was no money for sheep and then I got a job shooting sheep and then there was a job advertised at the local regional theatre company for a general hand and a truck driver's licence was required and I got the gig and then they were doing a production of The Importance of Being Earnest and they didn't have enough actors and to play Merriman, the country butler. Such a good and play. Someone, That's a fun <coughs> one to start with. And someone pointed at me and said, will he do? <laughs> I was hopeless. So hang on, you actually didn't set out to be an actor? I think I wanted to be a writer. I wrote a lot at school and then I just fell into this thing and I was terrible at it. And some people will say I still am, but um, I thought, wow, it was the first time in my life I'd been no good at anything, to be honest. I'd been a good sportsman, I'd been a good student, you know, I'd been good at most things I tried to do. And then there I was trying to be an actor and I was absolute crap. 
And I thought I'd better try and see whether I can get any better at this. And, and I, I love the community and I love the, 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 the intellectual challenge and I love the creative challenge. Um, I, I, was, I think I always wanted to do something creative but I, I didn't know what it was and I ended up being an actor. So there you go. Well, see, in a way, I, I was not good at anything. So <laughs> I was the opposite. And anything creatively, I sort of, kind of just, I could do it. I worked out, even at school, I was hopeless academically, but I was always in the school plays and I started directing plays at school. So, yeah, it was sort of the only place I felt like I fitted in. What made you think that you could make a life out of being creative? I never even considered making a life. It was just like, this was what I was going to do. If I had to have a jobs on the side, like... When I was directing theatre, I always had to work. I never, never sustained me and I didn't care. I just thought I would, I loved it so much. I loved the collective nature of putting on a piece of theatre and I loved, um, you know, everything we chose to do. I tried, it was always about sort of, you know, marginalised people or I didn't tend to do popular. So Brecht, for example, mm. at La Trobe. There was a headline in Rabelais um, after the opening night of probably the second Brecht I directed saying Bertolt Brecht meets Benny Hill. <laughs> and I remember, but unlike when I got told I couldn't act, I wasn't offended, even though it was an offensive title in some ways. It was funny and I appreciated that. And the rigour that he'd written the article with the person made me, there were lots of really good things in amongst going, this fucking chaos what this woman's tried to do because my thesis in that stage was at Latrobe anyone who comes to audition gets in the play which was sort of this Brechtian notion of you know for the people of the people so it was appalling <laughs> you think you're bad you should have seen some of the things that are happening on that stage but I loved that I loved the inclusiveness and it's still the way I work you know well it actually is isn't it because so Boys With Balls it's, a, it's about inclusiveness yeah. and about that something brought, brings men together. You know, yeah. the, the and then there was the netball film. Yeah, group of women. What was that called? The Last Great Amateurs. Yeah. Yeah. And then I did the fifth set, which was about the Davis Cup. Again, you know, you could look at it's sport again as a way of bringing people together. Maybe not so much about inclusiveness. And then Tempest at the Drop-In. Beautiful films. No, actually, then comedy. I did one for the comedy festival called Class Clowns about young people who um, auditioned to get into Class Clowns with the comedy festival, and then I followed four students through. That was really interesting because it was like there was a young uh, religious Jewish boy who had issues with when he could perform, a girl from the western suburbs who'd never done this before in her life, you know, a well off girl from Brighton, and then another young boy from the outer suburbs and watching their change through that. So it's always, I, I tend to make observational films where I follow a group of people or a, an idea or, an, or an, an activity and see where it goes and see what comes out of that. And you watch the change in people and their development and, or not. But mm. I mean, I tend to, what I'm always looking for, I realize in my work is hopefulness and, um, like I never, I don't, I have no intention, no desire to put people down or to expose them in ways, even if I have seen that, which mm. I'm often seeing things that I don't need to see or shouldn't see or I don't need to share that stuff. I want to share 
what makes an audience look at someone in a different light and perhaps appreciate them. That's the thing, isn't it? We all have a story and we tend to sort of want to compartmentalise people's lives because it makes it convenient for us. But the films, for instance, Tempest at the Dropping. I'll just shut the door. You're just going to shut the door. I'll just shut the door because I can hear Henry's playing music. And it might be. Teenage son Henry J. Might have licensing issues now. Uh, upstairs <laughs> playing music. My teenage son. I walked in on the house and uh, Sue was dancing in the kitchen with her children and a friend and one of their, or a friend from France. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That sense of community is really important to you, isn't it? I noticed that in your family, but it's important to you more broadly. Yeah, it really is. Community is everything to me, you know. Perhaps slightly dysfunctional family, you would understand that, so that we are drawn to our friends and our loved ones. They're really important to us. Mm. Yeah, they, and therefore you want to take that into the wider world and make the world a better place <laughs> if we can. Well, more understanding more accepting mm -hmm. tempest at the drop in which we have a strong connection over because my father my late father was was in that film how did that come about um i think uh, another shared acquaintance of ours joseph sherman who mm. was maybe my gp at the time certainly the kids gp down at carlisle contemporary health center he mentioned that he was working at the St Kilda Drop-In Centre doing a, potentially putting on a performance. Um, I think they had some sort of open house in the church for people to go and have a look at. And so there was maybe seven people we dropped in to see a little sort of, they did a little scene or they workshop something. And John Bolton and Bagriana and Brian Lipson and um, Joseph were there. And I, it was just one of those times as a filmmaker, he go, this is a good story. It had everything that I personally too, you know, there's no doubt that it <clears throat> appealed to me, but I, um, I mean, mental health has run in my family. So I think I have a very strong connection with people who suffer from mental health issues. I, if I can um, tell a story, if I can bring someone who's voiceless, to a, to a screen and have it on the ABC and let people see it, then I feel like I've maybe helped change someone's life a little bit or, as we were saying before, that maybe an audience might just shift the way they've thought about those people in the past slightly in a better way, in a more inclusive manner. So I remember seeing this little thing and then I approached them and said, with Joseph's help, we talked about it and he said, yeah, let's go and talk to John. And he said, sure. I mean, it was initially quite sensitive area because John Bolton who was directing the play I don't know if they'd decided on the tempest at that stage was you know uh, slightly uncomfortable about somebody being there with a camera full time mm. but the thing about that's getting back to the technical stuff so what I've sort of marketed with myself is that I'll go in alone and try and get sound vision and a story and I tend to do that for the first, you know, few months until it gets to crunch time when I actually need a bit of help because actually I come home and listen to the sound, I forgot to turn the fucking Zoom on. Or, <laughs> you know, I've 
thought I've pushed record on the camera but I've got the sound and I forgot to push record because I'm talking to someone and it's so crucial what they're telling me and if it's one of the people that drop-in centre you know I have to give them my full intention and in the meantime I'm trying to do all this technical stuff and of course I fail or I fuck up so but none of that I just go well that's part of me getting there because I get to know I have to spend time with people and you know hear their stories and then they have to hear mine and we have to connect on mm. some level before I can go in further. So I just figure it, in the edit suite, it does cause a few issues, you know, because like I work with this wonderful man at the moment called Uri Mizrahi and he edited the Tempest and he edited, edited the one I've just finished. And, you know, he'll say, that is an incredible scene and we can't hear anything. Mm. Or you can hear this little voice because I haven't turned the volume up because I'm not... I'm quite technical and I'm proud as a woman of my technical capabilities, but at times I make mistakes because I wasn't taught. So I'll come home and I'll work out how to use the Zoom and how to, you know. That's how I did it. Yeah. Well, do you find sometimes you fuck up? Oh, yeah, with, uh, with this, with uh, computers. You know, I'm the guy that sends you an email and then rings you five minutes later to see whether you got it because I have no confidence whatsoever in my ability to manage technology. But I didn't grow up with it. You know, there weren't, no, there weren't computers when I was at school and then I became an actor. And what do I use a computer for? I just don't use them. I use it like a great big typewriter, really. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, I make a lot of mistakes. But that's part, that's so much a part of the process, isn't it? A part of the, the creative process. Do you find, I, I find that I, I learn more, well, I only learn from my mistakes. I don't really learn a great deal from my successes. I. Don't know if I've had many successes in my life, I can say that. Um, I can only again talk about the documentaries I make. Every single time I make a film, the next one is better. Yeah. Yeah. Much better. Because I learned so much on the previous one. How, how long was it between uh, Tempest and, and this new film? Tempest was released 2014 and we're in 2018, but in between I made Talking Turkey with Colin Lane and Brian Nankervis, which no one has ever seen because, you know, we made this film of, about um, Australia's involvement in Gallipoli. Yeah. We got $10,000, well, 10, maybe 20, um, from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to do a research program on the 100 years of Australia's involvement in Gallipoli in a sort of documentary context. Mm. So instead of doing that, somehow the three of us thought, well, let's make a documentary with that $20,000. So we flew to Istanbul, we interviewed a lot of people there, interviewed a few people here, followed the boys. It was meant to be Brian and Colin, a bit like um, maybe the trip, you know? Mm taking us on this humorous but also informative journey and it just didn't work however so you know that was done and we got, had an editor who we didn't really pay a friend that we met and who was not that experienced and the whole thing sort of hangs together and looks quite good and I shot it all again um, it's dull that's what it is so <laughs> we've never shown it to anyone except my editor friend who said um it's dull he said yeah he said what about you go back and ask 
he said, you know, do one of those things where the boys look at the camera and talk about why it didn't work. Look, watch the film and then interview them. So I did that. So we did all that at, you know, a studio, the three, two of them watching it and going, oh, my God, and talking about the process of making a film that doesn't work. And I quite like that idea. Yeah. Whether, so, you know, I might revisit it, you know, cause, and make it into one of those, you know, documentary that, like, you could use it at film schools. <laughs> This, why doesn't this film, oh sorry, that's my chair, why doesn't this film work? Um, well, the boys will tell you why, and it's quite funny. You can come in, Hen. I'll thank Joe. Oh, good on you, darling. Take keys, could you? Yeah, love. See you, Henry Joe. See you, Neil. You need to get bags. For a walk. Um, <coughs> yeah, so that's, so that's sitting there, and I, we had such fun making it, but yeah, it just uh, I made a thing with Cole. We tried to. Do, I, I wanted to do a thing about, and interestingly, about what community is. And I tried to make a little rocco around the camp oven cook off at the Reedsdale camp oven cook off. I remember. Yeah, what happened to that? That didn't work either. <laughs> For the same sort of reasons. Yeah, I think it was a good idea, but it was a it, the way I handled it. I think was a bit flabby. Mm. Just a bit. I don't know. Maybe perhaps a little self-indulgent, I'm not sure. Mm. I haven't looked at it. That's excruciating, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I look, talking turkey may never see the light of day, but sometimes I think, mm, is there something there? Is there something I could um, do with it? So yeah, okay, so I did that. And then um, the Coming Back Out Ball movie, my friends, Roger Monk and Tristan Meacham, we had a drink, you know, about three years ago and Tristan said he was going to put on this ball called Coming Back Out Ball um, for older LGBTI and, um, you know, would I like to direct a documentary about it? Basically, they invited me onto the project and it was like another no-brainer. It was like, are you kidding? I mean, for me it appealed because I'm, I'm really interested in ageing as um, an issue to look at and our ageing population. So I was really excited about that and obviously the LGBTIQ+, I mean, I, I'm an ally, I'm not a part of that community and that was very exciting to explore that and be a part of it and then to be putting on a ball at the Melbourne Town Hall. So it was like a theatrical event as well. So for me, it had everything um, I, I'm interested in. You know, marginalisation, discrimination. Oh, that, by the way, <laughs> is Jerry Seinfeld our dog? Um, so yeah, so that started, and so then basically, I just again, as is my want, I just follow with a camera, a zoom, very little equipment, so that I'm not intimidating anyone. And for the first sort of six months on this project i just went with tristan to stuff i didn't bring out my camera it wasn't appropriate so mm. i just we i went to his meetings and he was trying at that stage probably to generate funds and support for the project so i just would go along to all of that and listen and be a part of that and then slowly you know with his sort of permission I was allowed to bring out the camera at certain things, but we'd have to have set that up first, so it wasn't, yeah, there was much more sort of protocol with that, um, with this project, to 
be sensitive to people's needs, but probably no more so than the people with mental health issues, but um, I probably was a bit more independent on that on the tempest than I have been on this project. It's probably more communities and more committees that have had to approve. Well, it's more me. it's more of a political issue, isn't it? The it's LGBTI issue as opposed to mental health, which is swept under the carpet now. <clears throat> you probably I mean it's a terrible thing, but it does seem that things become part of the zeitgeist and government agencies jump on board. When I made The Tempest, everyone was funding things about mental health. Well, mental health is done and dusted, it feels. Now it's LGBTIQ+, probably in a couple of years. Be, and, you know, if my friend, you know, Kutcher Edwards is sitting here, he'd say, well, what about the fucking Indigenous community? Like, it's hard, you know? Everybody feels like they need a voice. And the fact that money comes in and out by governments and like, well, that's gone. It's like, well, hang on, it hasn't gone. We've got more things to say. We've got mental health will never go away. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And coming from a family that's been profoundly affected by it, um, it's, it's films like The, the Tempest at the drop-in that uh, humanise it And, and demonstrate in a way that it is a serious illness, particularly depression, which my family suffer from. Um, and there's this overwhelming sense that we all kind of appreciate that people suffer from depression, but when you actually suffer from something like bipolar, that's not just being sad. <laughs> that's a really quite a complex illness mm. uh, that can really have a severe effect on your capacity to, to, to function in the world. And. Um, and yet we kind of come, well, you're just sad, just, you know, you're depressed, you're sad. And, and it seems a lot of the time, too, that people actually say they're depressed when actually they're, they're really not depressed at all. They're just not having a great day, you know, and that's yeah, not that's depression. that's hard, isn't it? Because it yeah. seems like a lot of people say to me they're anxious and I think I can't help but wonder if it's anxiety that has crippled you for years or... I mean, when I was making The Tempest, and you may or may not remember this, Neil, but my younger brother suicided. Yeah, I do. So uh, here I am working with your father and his complex issues. And meanwhile, in the background, my family is, you know, in chaos and crisis. And I think that's the thing. It's that um, I wanted to humanise those people I will always want to humanise everybody in a way. Just because you're um, transgender or you have bipolar or you're, you know, a stolen generation, you've always got something to say. You're always part of this world. You need to have a voice. You need to be accepted and loved and cared for. And if my film, and it did the Tempest, I remember so clearly because as you know, the drop-in centre is very near a local primary school and a lot of those children came to see the play, uh, see the, they, some sort of play actually, but they saw the documentary and they said um, they weren't as frightened of those people who stand outside the drop-in centre, you know, yelling and screaming at the traffic or, you know, having a drink or whatever. Even 
to the point where they're in Safeway or calls with their mother and father and they'd see one of the cast and the kids would say hello, as with the parents. Mm. And the cast would say to me, Sue, people talk to me now. Mm. It's beautiful. Oh, if you can do that, I mean, that's... In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and think about the girl And never ever think of counting sheep I have to say that that's a slightly self-indulgent musical choice on my part. That's my father's favourite singer, Frank Sinatra, and In the Wee Small Hours. You're listening to episode six of Making Art. Making Art's released alongside a companion article about the featured artist written by me and published first in the Daily Review. The Daily Review is Australia's premier free online arts news and opinion site, and it is totally, totally self-supporting, relying on you, the reader, to keep it going. So, if you're a fan of quality arts journalism, I encourage you to get online and have a look. And while you're there, please click on the menu and head to the support page and consider a modest contribution that'll help them maintain quality arts journalism as part of the national discourse. The Daily Review, like this podcast, is free, and I know we all like free things. But the truth is, nothing made costs nothing to make. All we ask is that you pay what you can, make a gold coin donation, and it may also help us cover the cost of making this podcast. You can also visit the Making Art website for helpful links to things that we've mentioned in our conversation at www.makingart.com.au. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the cell. And I made a decision to welcome you back when I was recording, so that's there. It's a new thing, I thought I'd try it. Anyway, here's Sue talking about what it feels like to make films. I've never said welcome back, because I do it in the voiceover, but I just, I just did them, welcome back. Uh, um, <clears throat> we're on air. Really. We're on air, yes. Uh, we, were just, we're, we were just talking about um, that desire, that innate desire to contribute. Uh, how does it manifest itself in you? How does it make you feel? What does it do to you? I suppose it moves me and I'm so saddened by the injustices of this world and, you know, that <clears throat> keeps on getting worse. Um, I, get, get, I get emotional because I think I want to... Um, if I can help in any way, and because I love... and this, Obviously, I love what I'm doing, so that's exciting, but... Um, Uh, and so it makes me feel like I'm doing something to help, I suppose. That's actually really deeply affected you, hasn't it? Yeah. Right in this moment. Straight out of that. Mm. Because I, it's what I do. Mm. And 
thousands of people will never see anything I do ever you know so many of them just you know one night that's it but I want to keep going and going and going and um like I really want to tell a story about older women who you know lose everything and <clears throat> end up living in their cars and uh I want to tell the story of Triple R how it it's like a phoenix rising from the ashes and there's stories about out there that I would like to capture on film so how does it make me feel it makes me feel emotional passionate and then excited because I'm I'll do it as long as I can because the one thing about this job is you can do when you're 70. <laughs> I hope so yeah me too there's a few things that I've left undone <laughs> um yeah the um that idea of giving back is seems to be central to, to, to the way you think. Mm. I, I suppose I see, excuse me, every day as a no, gift. And I don't want to make this sound like some kind no, of... No, uh, so, so, you, <laughs> no. Eulogising Sue Thompson, here we are. <laughs> no, but I do see every day as a gift and I do want to, you know... Oh, that sounds wanky. Do good in the world. I spread myself too thin, I, you know, but I, I like to be available to people. I like to volunteer at the women's house in St Kilda. I want to be here for my kids every minute of their lives. My partner, if I can do anything to help him. If I'm making a film, I'll work on it 24 hours a day. You know, if I can just be part of this world and 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 you don't get you don't seem to get disillusioned which is interesting because you know it's been a struggle getting these films up hasn't it i mean there's mm -hmm. it's hey, you were talking earlier on about you know money for mental health money for lgbti money for this money for that mm -hmm. does it frustrate you sometimes that people don't just say oh no she makes good films why don't we just I suppose I've never really thought that. Anyway, maybe I don't make good films. You know, maybe my films are okay, and that, that uh, and that's kind of good enough. If I get a few marginalised voices out there, great. If um, I've never really well, no, I've never been lauded or you know told that I was brilliant at it. And in a way. Uh, I believe I'm doing something good. I do. Yeah. Earlier on, before we actually started recording, when I first came in, you said um, uh, you you struggle with the confidence to call yourself a filmmaker. But don't we all? I mean, how long? I never called myself an actor, even though I was. I never called myself a director, and now as a filmmaker, it just seems so wanky. I think that's that whole you know Australian tall poppy thing. But probably when I turned. It was probably around The Tempest. Okay, so what happened with The Tempest? Because the other films I was somehow able to direct with a bit of support from ABC or, you know, Screen Australia. But with The Tempest, I had no funding. So I had to actually tell people I was trying to eke, you know, $5,000 of I am a filmmaker. And I think it was that film and everything that was happening in my family and it was all pretty heavy. So I thought, if you don't start telling people you're a filmmaker, Sue Thompson, you'll never be a filmmaker. You won't, you know, or, or you will be, or, or what are you denying yourself? A bit like what you were saying, like, um, because we do have suffer certain neuroses, um, 
I was like, for God's sake, Sue, at what point will you say, this is the work you do? So, yeah, I, but I really struggled with saying, it sounded like I was an egotist to say that I was a filmmaker. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I, for the first probably 10 years of my career, I didn't call myself an actor. In fact, I, I think I was on the electoral roll at one point as a thinker. Because <laughs> when people asked me what I did, I said I had to have a think about it. And I, I did, I remember that. That's brilliant. Putting myself on the electoral roll as a thinker. <laughs> but also that was part of my, where I came from, you know, that, that lower middle class upbringing that, you know, where to do something that you, that you, that you were passionate about was kind of not a, not the priority. The priority was to get a job and, and do a thing, you know, whatever that happened to be. And that was your kind of lot. Well, that seemed to me to be the message I was getting. Was it similar for you? Yeah, well, didn't your family... I don't think my family to this day call me a filmmaker. Like, when are you getting a job or what are you doing? When are you... What is that, isn't that finished yet? You're still doing that thing. What, what, what is it? You know, I remember for years, like, if I had a job as a waitress when I was making a film or directing a play, that was my job. Yeah. How's your job going at the hotel? Well, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've been through a bit of a period of, you know, recalibration, let's call it that. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to my mother and she said, well, and when I first, was very young, I actually, I did, I worked as a waiter. And, uh, and I was a, wasn't a bad waiter. And my, I, my mother said to me, oh, well, why don't you just, I'm 57, she said, why don't you just get a job as a waiter? You were good at that. I mean, I've been an actor for 35 years and my mother's solution to my unemployment was to go and get a job as a waiter, which, you know, pro quite probably, uh, I, you know, I, I should do. I'm actually driving a bus at the moment. Which so bus are you driving? I'm driving a bus. bus. I'm driving a bus for a, an institution. Uh, do you get paid? I do. Oh, see, do. that's nice. Yeah. Be happy with that. I'm, I'm, I enjoyed driving the bus. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm thinking about going back to the school canteen um, just to get, you know, a couple of hundred bucks coming in again. So, yeah. It's hard. So, yes, my mum's a bit the same. Like, yeah, so that's why we don't, I think, we weren't... To, work, to go into the arts as a child was just never a consideration in my house. No. Uh, and not because my parents weren't educated or they were quite, you know, they worked in... My dad was a teacher and then he worked in the education department for a long time. But nobody ever sort of talked about it or So I think it was just the time we came from, perhaps, yeah. you know. So yeah, claiming it was exciting and I like, I actually do now, I can say quite confidently that um, I am a filmmaker, that's what I do and I really love it. And I don't say, I'm, I could say documentary maker, I sometimes get confused about the word filmmaking, like what does that mean? I don't really make Hollywood dramas, I don't make, um, uh, you know, TV shows. I make documentaries and a few little things on the side. So am I, but you, you don't tend to say I'm a documentary filmmaker. So you just say I'm a filmmaker, but I do enjoy saying it. I feel proud of myself and that's taken many years to get here. So um, do you see that as uh, a kind of, 
Does that change the way you approach things now? Has it changed the way you look at projects? Has it changed the way that you engage in conversations with potential? Uh, I probably do it with more confidence, yeah. And I mean, people say I come across confidently, you know, you don't, you doubt yourself, but um, yeah, probably, so I probably speak more confidently and try not to fudge it that, oh, what do you do? I do this, but I'm actually looking for support for this project. No, I'm, so yeah, I probably do approach it. It's like, you know, I've grown up. It's just taken a long time. How important has it been to have the support of this family, this family of yours? I couldn't have done it without Brighton and Curvis, particularly before the kids were born. He was the one, you know, I had a, quite a solid job with an arts organisation, good money, you know, super, all those things. Well, not super, we never had super, but, you know, those things in those days. And I sort of pitched Boys and Balls to him, and he was like, oh, you just should do it. You know, no, so there wasn't a hesitation. And I've, he's the only person I know like that. I was like, yeah, quit your job, don't worry about it. And I, you know, and I wrote this script and he helped, we wrote it together in the end. I like, I showed him what I was doing and then he came on board, we wrote it together. We sent it to someone at the ABC who's no longer there. In those days, you could sort of get the script to him. And we got on a plane and we went on our first overseas trip together. And we were in London, I got a call from the ABC saying they would like to invest and make Boys and Balls. I mean, it was unheard of. I wasn't, I'd never made anything in my life. And neither had he, he was probably being Roman J at that stage. So mm. we were just this, and, but that was his belief in me and drive, 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 drive and push and just go. And he's so full, full of optimism and, you know, the rich experiences that life have out there are for everyone to have a go at if they believe they can or they want to. Mm. And so he the whole time through every project has been behind me supporting and paying the bills and supporting and supporting him. And then when I've got some money, I can do the same for him. And then he's gone and done some work. So, yeah. It's been an extraordinarily um, complimentary relationship and, yeah, I have to say I wouldn't be here today without Brian Nankervis. And the kids. And the kids now have all jumped on board in different ways. You know, they're very supportive. They're at everything. They come to everything. You know, two of them are moving in the sort of arts and entertainment world themselves now as adults, young adults, and... Um, because I have two daughters and as a woman, I think they're, and we live in a world that's much more political, they say, you know, wow, mum, you're bloody getting that film made despite the patriarchal society we live in and it's really exciting and good on you, you know. Do you, do you find that, the, that there is a patriarchy out there that is, that is making it, that makes it more difficult for you to make things? I would say up until the last maybe 12 months, it's been the hardest hurdle I've had to overcome as a woman in the film and television industry. Yeah, I don't exist. And now, because of the world is changing and, you know, gender matters and there's, you know, all the organisations and, and film and television particularly are looking at the balance of gender in every area. And so... 
I think, and I can't be sure of this, but I think me being a woman helped uh, the Coming Back Outball movie get some funding, the film I've just finished. I think me being a director and being a woman was what, another tick in the box next to ageing and LGBT. I think we, and I think it was said to us by a couple of Screen Australia investors, you know. So yes, that, that for the first time ever, perhaps being a filmmaker is a great, I live in a great time and I'm really excited about that. But no, it's been, I, yeah, I've been overlooked, ignored, you know, uh, for many years as trying to be a filmmaker. How do you push through that? How do you, how do you, because I know you and I know that you are full of life, full of enthusiasm, full of optimism. How do you continue that over such a long period of time? Because a lot of us as artists, we, we face that. We face, um, you know, some, sometimes <laughs> it's just because we're no good, but, <laughs> but, but to continue to pull yourself up uh, uh, when you keep getting slapped down, how do, you, how do you maintain that enthusiasm? How do you maintain that optimism? I suppose the optimism? little tiny um, successes, little tiny glimmers of uh, someone appreciating your work is enough, certainly been enough for me to get through. And there have been few and far between. But um, I suppose, you know, you'd have to say I believe in myself. And because I've, you know, even though I, one hand I say, I'm not comfortable with being a... I'm not comfortable being a filmmaker. Probably everything I've done is pretty ordinary. The other flip side is, well, I have to acknowledge the only reason I'm still doing it is because I must have believed... Because nobody else believed in Sue Thompson apart from her family. But really, nobody. I don't exist out in the film and television world. Not really. Like, I'm not well-known or, you know, I don't have a reputation. Yet I've done sort of... Five or six pretty solid films mm. didn't amount to anything. Everybody always said after Boys and Wars, I remember they go, oh, because it got reviewed really well and I got a lot of press. And But I was so naive in those days. I just thought, oh, someone will call me to make a film. <laughs> it never happened. Not once. And every film I've made, I, I have friends who will say, oh, it's going to be really good for, you know, you, you know, someone's... I have never once been asked to make a film because of the film that's gone before me, you know, and yet you're always judged on your work, but it hasn't, been, I've had to be out there going, right, okay, so a year or two has gone by and the phone is not ringing, I better bloody get out there and start my next project. Because I know with uh, Tempest of the Drop-In, you really struggled to get a release for that film, didn't you? Yeah, man, I got rejected by everybody. And then the ABC fight, and I remember, I like, I thought, I am not going to give up. I'm really quite, I'm, I'm quite a determined person. And if I believe in the work, I'll push it. And I'll push it because no one else will do it. So if I don't believe in it and I don't do the work, then it'll never happen. So I have to really, so with The Tempest, I kept hassling the ABC. And after, you know, rejection number four, I wrote some email. I'd heard about Mental Health Week or something. And I said, I sort of sent an email off saying this film would fit within the boundaries of, of what, you know, your social mission of mental health is. And sure enough, 24 hours later, I got an email back saying, yes, we'd like to buy it for the princely sum of $7,000 they bought that film for. But they, look, 
I didn't care, they could have given me 700. I was so happy and so delighted. And it screamed, it's, they've screamed it about six times now. The weirdest times, like midnight, every now and then someone say, oh, I saw the temperature. They never let you know or anything, but yeah, I don't care. It's got out there, it had a little life, it exists, it's captured those people's stories. You know, it's about capturing stories that won't be told again. Your dad, I didn't know all that stuff. Can't be told again, that's true. No, and we've got it now, mm. forever. Yeah, he had a marvelous time doing it. He had, a, he loved, it. he loved it. He was the king. He was the king. He was the king. <laughs> he was a funny man, my father, because um, he. Uh, I think he was proud of me, but he never, never had a way of saying it. But he, <clears throat> he, he wanted to be an actor. <laughs> I think because I was an actor, he wanted to do things. But he also, he loved that drop-in centre. He loved that. He loved. Because he was very isolated by his mental illness and by physically isolated because of his uh, physical disabilities as a result of alcoholism, and um, and to have that community and then to actually share in that experience of making a film kind of made his, you know. He well, he would. He said to me, he a bit like you. He said, "Oh, I can't do this acting thing. This is my son's work." You know, he never claimed it as his own. He knew. You know, Neil, he was always talking about Neil, my son is an actor, but I think he loved at least having an experience that perhaps he realised what you, and he really enjoyed it. And he, yeah, maybe it was his way of trying to broach a relationship with me, which... Understand what you've done, and but he was very self-deprecating for a long time, like, oh, I can't do this. Like, mm. he never sort of barged in there claiming it. But like you, he had that stature and that charisma and he had presence. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he really did. And then his whole flying history. I mean, I yeah, amazing stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, he was... Uh, well, he had a fascinating life. Um, difficult. Difficult. A difficult one that I'm only just starting to reconcile. Mm. But this isn't about me, Sue Thompson. This is <laughs> can about I ask you some questions? Yeah, you can ask me some questions. <laughs> no, no, that, no, that's fine. I mean, I think I understand a bit of that. And it's sad and... I remember seeing you after the film and sobbing and, you know, yeah, it's hard. It's confronting all those things. But how beautiful that we've got that now for you, no matter what your feelings are about your father. And I know they're complex and they're black, not just black and white. But you have this record of an experience that he went and, and he, you know, he can talk to the camera in ways that he couldn't talk to you. And that's the thing about it, isn't it? Uh, uh, these people having their voice and being able to speak truthfully about their experience of life um, on their own terms. You know, they get to say it the way they want to say it, not, not through a filter that we create for them. And has that been the experience of the LGBTI film? Absolutely. Uh, in the most remarkable ways. I had so much material, like, to choose what ended up there, to choose the... Because, you know, the film... The new film has ten characters, which is insane for a documentary, you know. The rule of thumb, you know, you learn all this as you're making them over the years. I would just be listening to it. Why are you meant to make a dog? You sort of have about four to five as tops. Well, in this film, I've put ten people in because I wanted ten people to, you know, to have the opportunity to speak. And... I think it's interesting as you talk then part of 
I think what happens in a documentary is that they're talking to a stranger. Sure, we have formed a relationship, but they're not talking to a child or a partner. So yes, they speak truthfully. They say things they may never have said before. Mm. And what, you know, I've had a contact, I have continued contact with them at the moment, and a few of them have come in and said, after they've seen the film, you ask questions that I hadn't been asked before. And so I had to think about my responses. And now I see that you have opened up new areas. Let's say I'm talking about Michelle who transitioned and fully transitioned by the end of the film. You know, new areas, but also she said most beautifully is that you've captured my story. And she said, if we don't tell our stories, we don't have an identity. And as a tr woman who's transitioned, I ha this is my story, this is my new story. And if I don't get to tell it, if I don't get to say it over and over again, it, I, don't, I feel I don't exist. It's a bit like you and saying, I'm a filmmaker. Perhaps, yeah, maybe, I hadn't thought of it that way. And In that, a much more profound sense, but mm. um, it's the same thing, isn't it? Unless mm. you can, Unless you can talk about your experience, it kind of isn't one in a way. You can, you've got to be able to share. This is the great thing I think about the films that you make, and I'm going to sort of uh, talk you up now. But the thing is that that things aren't real for, for for us as a community until we hear it, until we can. While it's inside me or it's inside you, it's mine, you know. And, but once I open my mouth and speak about it, well, it's everybody's, and we've all got a we've all got a part of that. Then, and that's the beautiful thing about these films, I think. Mm. And it's and this one in particular, because so many of these people have lived hidden um, for so many years, and that now that they're all out. Um, it's been very, it's been a profound experience for most of this cast and therefore myself as well. It's been a privilege to make and um, I'm incredibly honoured and proud to have listened to their stories and shaped them as much as we could and got as many in as we could in a quite a short period of time. Yeah, and they have all been very moved because it's one thing to be a part of something you know, like, you know, we talk about Hannah Bertram's work or like being in a play, it comes and it goes. But this you can put in your shelf and one day bring out in five years' time and revisit your story or show a, a, a friend or a grandchild or someone. It's like capturing moments in time. That was Making Art, Episode 6. My thanks to Sue Thompson and the dog and the kids for allowing me into their creative space. Colm for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music was composed by my previous guest, Tim Dargaville, and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Pixel Shifter and technical production is by Ben Churchill at Sonic Playground. Making Art was produced by me, 
Neil Piggott. Sue Thompson's beautiful new film, The Coming Back Out Ball Movie, will be screened on Sunday the 19th of August as the closing film of MIFF, the Melbourne International Film Festival, and that will be in Acme Cinema One, I'm pretty sure, but check miff.com.au for details. Join me in a fortnight when I will again be coming to you from somewhere I haven't quite decided yet, but I'm thinking, as I thought last fortnight, it would be a playwright, although I'm pretty sure it'll be the Tasmanian playwright, Tom Holloway. Whoever it is, our next episode will go up on the 5th of August. And don't forget to check out Australia's number one arts pages at The Daily Review and our website, www.makingart.com.au. I'll leave you now with Sue Thompson and the difficulties of selecting a song for a film and having it knocked back. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. I had, this is actually ultimately quite devastating, I was devastated. We had I Want to Break Free by Queen. Yeah. We lost it. How come? We had, because the rights were owned, the, you have to apply for rights, world rights, you had to, there were like three organisations, including, you know, Queen themselves. They, two said yes, so we thought we had the third one, there's a biopic being released, a biopic being released, sorry, in November this year, I think, and oh, they Freddie. said nobody can use any, I think of Freddie or the band, I think Freddie Mercury or the whole band, I think it's a Queen pick, and so you can't have it. So I was devastated because to me it opened the film perfectly. Um, we have um, Elton John's I'm Still Standing. So it has the same, it resonates in the same way. It has the same um, idea of an older group of people who have come out and are still standing and still living and partying and have got something to offer to this world. Um, but I'm not as attracted to the song. But other people like it more than the other one so and the cast love it so that's good <laughs> you can never know what it's like your blood like when a fuse is just like ice and there's a cold and lonely light that shines from you you'll wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use and did you think this fool could never win well look at me i'm coming back again i got a taste of love and a simple you just fade away Don't you know